This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Patrick Wood, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Absolutely. This is great. I love technology. The fact that we could be together continents apart just blows my mind. And it's a wonderful thing. I'd much rather be sitting in the studio with you right now. But you know, that's not going to happen being that we're so far apart. And probably for a while because I am not getting any of these injections. So it looks as though I'm not going to be allowed to travel anywhere. Uh, I mean, you in the States. That's right. And I feel the same way. I, I have no mind to give the airlines in the United States one thin dime for flying. I just won't do it until I get off this uh, tyrannical idea that everybody has to wear a face mask on the plane and you know, that kind of stuff. I'm just not going to do it. So. We were talking just before we went live that you've been to South Africa. Yes. yes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about it's, that. I know it, it's kind of a long story. I, ha I don't get to share this very much because it's just not pertinent, but it's pertinent to you because you're from South Africa, right? Um, back in the 1970s, I worked with a, uh, a gentleman um, by the name of Don McLevaney, who was an international gold expert at the time. And because South Africa mines a lot of gold, uh, that was always on our, on our radar, you know, to know, well, what's going on with the companies in South Africa mining gold? And so, we had done some visits to South Africa, looking at um, the gold mines and the companies that ran the gold mines and so on, doing research projects on them, uh, writing. And we, we very quickly discovered that South Africa was under uh, great duress at that time and attack by Marxist communist forces in the region, as well as from, uh, from Russia, from USSR. Um, to dominate, well, first just to dominate Sub-Saharan Africa, period, but with the intent of taking over the Cape shipping routes, which were critically important to the free world, just critically important. And we saw what was going on there. We said, this is, this is just outrageous. And of course, the media in the United States at the time was completely misre misrepresenting the whole of everything going on in Southern Africa, especially in South Africa. Um, it was just propaganda is what it was, it's pure propaganda, but it was costing the forces of freedom, let's say the side of freedom and liberty, it was costing people a lot in, in that regard. So we started an organization and we, <laughs> it had a couple of names along the way. We called it Americans Concerned About South Africa. Yeah. And then we changed it later to Americans Concerned About Southern Africa because we had to wrap in what was happening in Rhodesia and Mozambique. Botswana, Angola. And so we just kind of expanded our mission a little bit. But what we did is we sponsored um, legislative and media trips to uh, South Africa and then to the more to the region where we would fly groups of people, uh, could be journalists, could be staff from our legislators in Washington, DC. We fly them down and we would put together geopolitical tours for them to be addressed by South African officials, uh, maybe some politicians, maybe some military, um, some media people. And they would go back. Uh, 
completely with their eyes wide open at that point. They would go back to, to America and say, guys, stop the bubble machine, guys. You got it all wrong. Well, we did that for quite a while until my, uh, my, my partner in the organization, Don McElvaney, who was doing, actually, he did most of the trips down. He took, he took a trip down, I, I bet, every, every three months or so of different individuals. And it was, you know, we did a lot of, a lot of touring. But finally, uh, he had a threat put on him, an assassination threat put on him by the ANC. And the, the, um, the head of the police department in uh, Pretoria told him, you need not to come back here again. And he was a friend too, but he said, don't bother coming back because wow. they got they got you in the crosshairs and you you'll go out in a body bag or a casket. So Gee. that was kind of the end of our um, our excursion in South Africa. But in the meantime, we we operated for several years and we made a lot of great friends down there. And uh, we took a lot of people down um, to you know just to see what was going on from from your perspective, right? Just listening to what your people authorities in your country were saying. And um, it was very rewarding for us. But the thing that really impressed me, I'll tell you what, what got me personally involved, just excited about it. Uh, both of us were, uh, were born again Christians at that time. I was fairly uh, young in the face, so to speak. But we had noted the persecution happening around the world of Christians. Now, this was especially true in, oh my gosh, and ended up in Rhodesia when the, the rebels started to attack there. And in Mozambique, I mean, if you were a Christian, you were dead. You just, you just forget it. You'd be hacked into little pieces and sent around to all your neighbors. And we were very concerned about the Christian uh, um, persecution happening around the world. And there was, even in America, I have to say, because we were in terrible shape at that point too. And what really impressed me was we went to Pretoria and we walked up the Capitol steps and here on the Capitol steps were tables set up because the way the steps go up, as you know, I mean, maybe everybody up here doesn't know, uh, the steps go up and then there's a, uh, some concrete, you know, like a, a pad and then some more steps go up and some more pad. On those pads were tables set up, like six foot, eight foot tables where people were passing out um, Bibles, tracts, you know, Christian literature, books and, you know, pamphlets and stuff like that on the Capitol steps. And I commented to Don, I said, Don, if, if, if anybody did that in Washington, DC, they would probably be arrested and thrown in jail without a, without a warrant, you, you know, because every, everything, uh, you know, up here was trying to get all religion out of government, all religion out of uh, Washington, DC, you couldn't, you know, they didn't want you to post the 10 commandments on the wall in school and, and, you know, um, and monuments and stuff were being altered or being tried, you know, tried to be torn down and stuff. And um, this really impressed us because I figured that we figured that was the only government in the entire world at that time that actually would would permit religion to be displayed on government property. That's interesting. So anyway, yeah, it, it was really interesting. But aside from that, that that's that's not central to the story at all and why we went down there in the first mm. place, but it did impress me. And um, so as we saw South Africa first under intense attack, we, we took it as 
there's more than just a physical thing going on with this whole thing. This also seems to be a spiritual attack as well. Um, and unfortunately, the whole story didn't end very well for South Africa, at least mm -hmm. as far as we were looking back then. We were not happy with the outcomes uh, in years that went on after that. You know, we looked at what's going on, and um, you know, especially with the, with relation to the farming industry and you know, the farmers and stuff in South Africa, very disturbing. It's still not. But anyway, that's good. just kind of you know uh, <laughs> a, a chapter in my life. It was a good chapter, and I enjoyed it. I met so many nice people down there. Mm. Uh, just amazing. Well, I was saying it's still not looking good because uh, our government is friends with all the wrong people. So, yes, I know, I know. It's uh, it's the problem. This is problematic everywhere in the world right now. But I mean, we'll get into our main topic in a moment. But why do you think? Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's so much anti-Western hatred? Well, it's not at this point. We'll have to frame this in terms of technocracy. I know we will as we mm -hmm. go on. There is a natural antipathy between uh, the technocracy movement and governments, government structures. Technocrats and technocracy wants to do away with government structures altogether. It wants to assert direct control over people. Governments are, are viewed as um, freeloaders, as meddlers, whatever, you know, they, they get a lot of stuff wrong. Of course, we, we might say the same thing, but, but you know, technocracy hated government. They always have ever since it got started. And most government organizations don't really realize the, 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 the divide. Um, but you look, at, you look at the West and you look at the East and, and you see the same kind of deconstruction taking place just in slightly different terms. It's, but you look deep and you see, well, it's kind of the same thing. It's a deconstruction of organized political systems for the sake of implementing the, you know, the scientific dictatorship type, type of a system where you have direct control over everything in society by algorithm, essentially. You really don't say, and that, and that uh, vein, they think there's no need for political system because they have the answers to society. They think they're so good and so right that, uh, why would you need to talk about it? It's like, we have the science. What do you, what's to discuss? The science is always right. You need to follow the science. Of course, it's not following the real science. We're just following what they cook up in their own little crucibles in the back room. Decide yeah, the, what, the science yeah. TM. <laughs> right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the West, though, in particular, has been, I think, more obviously under attack because... Um, the West has been the container of freedom and liberty for a very long time. And now it's kind of boiled down to the United States, I'm afraid, mm. because most of Europe is gone uh, as far as, I mean, it's just horribly autocratic and tyrannical what's going on in Europe right now. I don't see any easy recovery from it either. Um, well, in other words, I don't see a pathway for them to get out of the tyranny that they're into. And then you have, of course, Asia, uh, China and India are in horrible shape. Malaysia is in horrible shape. Uh, most of the uh, the African continent is in turmoil. It has been for a long time. There's nothing new there, but uh, they're in they're in extra turmoil, let's say, right now uh, in many countries. And almost in every case, the 
the, the resistance, whoever that is, whether it might be uh, Marxist-oriented rebels or terrorists, or it might be freedom groups, it always the, the complaint is we need to get rid of government. <laughs> we need to get rid of that government and you know let the people run the country. Well, that's what technocrats are hoping for, is to essentially to burn down the social structures of the world so that technocracy can rise up in the ashes like the great phoenix bird <laughs> and the reason, kind of take over the whole the whole world the reason why you and i are talking patrick is uh, because of that amazing book of yours technocracy which has rapidly uh, found itself at the top of my favorite books ever list um, and i was telling you just before we went live that i've bought two copies of it an audio version and a kindle version um it's that good um what is technocracy well the model of technocracy was created in 1932 at columbia university in new york city columbia at the time was the most progressive university and probably in the world they kind of were the vanguard of pro progressivism and in the heat of the great depression 1932 of course uh, stock market crashes in 1929 and by 1932 actually the whole world was in depression and people in america believed a lot of people believed that capitalism was dead and free enterprise was dead gone we needed to bury it and those engineers at Columbia University decided that they were smart enough they could invent a brand new economic system from scratch and that they called it technocracy. And um, it was an economic system in the sense that it was, uh, it was designed to control all resources and all, all, all output of manufacturing and all consumption by people. They called it a resource-based economic system. It looks a lot like sustainable development. It looks like at the United Nations today. It looks a lot like the Great Reset today that the World Economic Forum talks about. It looks a lot like the Green New Deal that a lot of leaders are talking about and things like statements you hear like build back better. This all branches from original from the original technocracy movement. Once capitalism and free market economics is dead, why the only other alternative being offered is technocracy. That's a resource based economic system. Furthermore, they said that uh, they wanted to regulate, they wanted to do away with all currency completely. They wanted to regulate the economic system according to the amount of energy that went into it. And of course, logically, no economic activity could take place without energy. You have to have energy to make things, right? Factories don't mm -hmm. run unless you have electricity and oil and gas, whatever. Um, so they felt that was a natural way to control and regulate the economic system so they they developed this this idea of energy credits that would be simply given to people kind of like universal basic income everybody would receive an allocation in society of energy credits or script where they could go out into to stores and stuff and purchase goods and services based on the amount of energy that went in to make those goods and services so they had this scheme worked out where all currency would be wiped away, all value and, and all supply and demand issues would be wiped away. And they would regulate the economy according to energy. So they would very carefully control the amount of energy going in and, you know, into the society to build things, make things. Um, the second thing they said about themselves, which is disturbing, 
sure is that they um, they talked a lot about this what they call the science of social engineering that was the means by which they were going to accomplish everything else and uh, the science of social engineering uh, obviates the need for a political system mm. altogether because they as the, they as the social engineers intended to use their scientific method of social engineering to simply to condition and control society to do what they wanted to do. Um, very draconian. It was very scientific dictatorship, dystopian, brave new world, <laughs> you know, 1984 type of, of a world where they're, you know, they just did it to you. You didn't have any choice. They, we will tell you how to live. And, you know, that reminds me of what Klaus Schwab said at the World Economic Forum multiple times. By 2030 or 2035, whatever he says, you will own nothing and you yeah. will be happy. Yeah, that's this is the mindset. This is the this is the um, the egotistical mindset of technocrats. They feel that they're so right that you just need to trust them. You know, you just need to do what they say because they have the PhDs, they have the, the trillions of dollars and whatever, and you just need to do what they tell you to do. Uh, this is not going well with a lot of people in the world. You might gather. I'm sure that's one reason why you and I are talking right now. Uh, there, there's somebody, there's people on every continent in the world that are hopping mad over this whole thing that's being done to the world right now. And they're starting to see through it finally. Like, yeah, we're getting played here big time. Mm. And it's, but who's doing the playing? That's, that's still the question. Most people still don't see the historic roots of technocracy. If they did, they would understand what's going on today and who's funding it, like who's behind it, right? Who's pushing it? They were so sure back in the 30s that that technocracy was going to take over the world that when when FDR, that was our one of our worst early progressive presidents, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he was elected in 32, about to take to be seated in 1933, January of 1933, uh, the technocracy movement leadership called for him to declare himself dictator and simply implement technocracy. There was a hardcover book written, a little small little book. I've got a copy of it. It was a rare book. I saw it. I said, I got to buy that book. I forget what I paid. It was way too much. But I said, I got to have that book. I bought it and I have it in my library here. But the, books, the book called on, on Roosevelt to be dictator and get rid of, con get rid of Congress get rid of uh, any elected positions up and down the line, or down to the state level, and simply create an organizational chart of technocrats that would be appointed uh, from a continental director all the way down to division directors and you know, for different functions and stuff. It was insane. It was really an insane uh, program that they were trying to, you know, well, he rejected it. He didn't do it, thank goodness. But instead we got the grant the we got the the new deal up here and politically speaking the new deal was kind of the beginning of government growth ad infinitum you know government controlling everything but the technocrats many technocrats did actually get into his uh, administration and and implement parts of technocracy here and there but they couldn't do the whole thing Capitalism, then, for them, unfortunately, 
was resuscitated in World War II. And all of a sudden, capitalism wasn't dead. And the factories were working again, and people were back to work, and they're making money, and you know, society seemed to be on the, on the upswing. And that pushed technocracy underground, basically. They had no reason to be anymore, but they, they kind of pushed them underground. And, and then later in early, 19, early 1970s, uh, the concept of technocracy was picked up again and implemented uh, more directly into policy uh, by the moneyed people, like, uh, like we're present in the early trilateral commission membership, for instance, that would include like David Rockefeller and you know some of the super rich people back then as well as uh, uh, multinational corporations and you know highfalutin politicians and it, it, the makeup of the trilateral commission looked a little bit like the makeup currently of the world economic forum just to give you an idea of the power was there the money was there but they saw in 73 an opportunity to change the economic model from free market economics into technocracy by controlling all the resources. And I think that's what appealed to people like Rockefeller back then is they <clears throat> once uh, when, and this takes us back to our gold discussion, <laughs> back to South Africa, when, when the dollar was, uh, the coupling of the dollar was removed uh, we knew back then when that first happened. We knew there is the end of paper currencies. That was under Nixon. Hey. That was under Nixon. Pardon? Was that, yeah, under, that Nixon? Was under Nixon? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. We knew that that was going to be the end of fiat currencies eventually. If we could figure it out, Rockefeller could figure it out. I'm sure. It's just a matter of time before all the paper currencies in the world burn up. Question is, what's going to come after that? Well. To the Rockefeller crowd, uh, he at the time was chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank, by the way, which is now J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, they saw that the ultimate goal would be just to own the resources or control the resources. Ownership wasn't so necessary as control. So they needed to control the resources of the world, and then it wouldn't matter what kind of monetary system sat on top of it. Just whatever you call it, whatever you want to call it. We could we could trade buffalo chips for all they care, right? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't matter. Um, so uh, the Trilateral Commission invented this new phrase called the New International Economic Order. And they based it uh, on the other co-founder of the commission, Zbigniew Brzezinski. They based it on his book, uh, which was titled uh, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. And uh, I went back and read that book again after I discovered historic technocracies about 12, 13 years ago. And I, I suspected that the word technotronic was a knockoff or technocratic, and it was. You know, I went back and read it again. Um, but the idea of uh, increasingly getting away from money, uh, fiat currencies, and simply controlling the resources, that that would be that would be their game plan, and that's exactly what we've seen. They created the the whole doctrine of sustainable development in 1992, January 21. Um, the United Nations has since carried this whole concept of sustainability and sustainable development, which is a resource-based economic system. And I very forcefully argue that that is technocracy. Um, they have spread this concept everywhere on the planet now. Every nation on earth has been infiltrated with this craziness, this resource-based economic system. Patrick, how does it differ from uh, 
cultural marxism or, or communism because people often go well it sounds like communism yes it does that's that's i understand that too that's a knee-jerk reaction we all have to try and explain new phenomena in terms of historical understandings right we all do it um it's something we need to guard against too because it will often prevent us from seeing what's really going on if we because when something unprecedented happened that nobody's ever seen before it may mean that we need to develop a new language a new understanding a new framework of you know handling and dealing with it stuff and i believe that's the case with technology today but brzezinski uh brilliant as he was as a political scientist by the way he was at columbia university when he wrote that book so just got a connecting a dot there um brzezinski was brilliant i disagree with him on every almost everything he ever said <laughs> but but he's a brilliant guy nevertheless he put it together um, Brzezinski was uh, certain that the future was going to hold three different eras. Even though his book says between two ages, America's role in a technocratic era, if you analyze it, it means there's three ages. There's the previous age, there's the current age that he was in at the time, and then in the future there was going to be a technotronic era. So there's three, his book speaks of three different historical to him realities. He was very certain it was coming. Um, he described Marxism and, techno and uh, its derivatives as necessary stepping stones to get to the technotronic era. And I thought a lot about that, why? You know, why would he, what, what would lead him to think that? Well, the basic idea, I think, this is the way I interpret it today, the basic idea is that Marxism with its derivatives have always been the great destroyers of society. <laughs> if you want to destroy a company, just throw a lot of Marxism in on it and the communism in on it and give it a few years, you know, put in the secret sauce and you'll have a country that implodes on itself, that becomes a social train wreck, mm. and that has everybody fighting everybody else, right? We've seen this all over the world. It's just been incredible. We, I've, I've seen it from afar in South Africa, yeah. even, and other uh, Southern African countries. So the role that that all of, all of the Marxist-related um, political philosophies have uh, contributed is to destroy modern society and it, and now especially in the West um, so as um, the United States has been thoroughly infiltrated by Marxist doctrines and uh, people exercising Mar Marxist um, agendas right this has not built America up this has torn America down mm -hmm. and almost at every turn now you see somebody manipulating these marxists now i'll use some some of the political people in our congress like like um alexandra ocasio cortez aoc she talks about the green new deal that's basically technocracy right but she talks about the green new deal while at the same time she spews marxist nonsense out of the other side of her mouth this is the only solution that's ever offered for the ills of any country, our country now, especially in America. We see that 
because of Marxism, our, our social fabric of our country is being ripped apart. But they say the answer is the Green New Deal. Yeah. We need, that's the problem. We need the Green New Deal. We need, you know, sustainable development. We need to become resilient and sustainable, which is all United Nations nonsense. But there's never a plan B. There's never another alternative. Like maybe we could fix the system we have or something or get some other people in there that will do things right. But there's never a plan B. It's always uh, sustainable development, Green New Deal type stuff that says, well, this is what we need. If we only had this, everything would be good. And that doesn't matter whether it's Marxist doctrine or whether it's global warming, mm. right? That's another big thing. Or whether it's uh, yeah. a pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Um, for all of the things going wrong everywhere, the only answer that they ever bring up is sustainable development. That's what we need. Let the United Nations take over. Let you know. Let the whole sustainable crowd take over. That's the, the technocrats of the world. And it sounds, Patrick, like it's completely incompatible with individual liberty. That's another statement. There is no individual liberty and technocracy. None. So what is uh, so what is the pretext? The pretext is environmentalism and uh, what economic efficiency. <clears throat> those are uh, those are some of the straw men that are kind of raised up to, I think, to uh, kind of confuse people. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> those are pretexts for grabbing resources. In, in my mind, as I study technocracy, I, I always have my anchor back in 1973 with David Rockefeller. That's where it started. That's where modern globalization started. Um, and I've pretty well satisfied myself that what Rockefeller was interested in was uh, was accumulating resources of the world. Not money. Directly. Not money, but the resources. Because if you own the resources, you control everything. It doesn't matter what kind of money or energy or whatever you want to call it. If you own all the resources, you own all the wealth. So if that was the original objective, I ask, has that objective changed over the years? Could, could it be that some other uh, thing came in and said, well, that's, we really didn't mean that. We changed our mind. We're going to go off and do something else. And I will, I will answer that and say, no, there has not been anything else. And here's how, here's how I look at that. Just as an ex I'll give an example. The United Nations, along with the World Bank, the IM and the IMF and the Bank for International Settlements have driven many third world countries, especially deeply into debt. With all the programs and stuff they offered, well, you know, you can do this and we'll get you this loan from the IMF and or the you know World Bank, whatever, and why you can be uh, you can be industrialized just like the United States or whatever the lie was to get in the borrow money. But they borrow the money and they can't run their country satisfactorily to pay the money back. So then they come knocking on the door and they say, you know, you got this problem down here, my friends. I'm thinking, I'll think like a Bolivia for us as an example. You got a problem here, my friends. You borrowed all this money and you can't pay it back. And they then they're thinking, well, you know, you kind of suckered us into buying this money uh, in the first place. And now they find out there's teeth on it, right? So 
what the World Bank and the IMF and the and um, you know the rest of these institutions did, they've gone back to all these countries that they drove deeply into debt, and they said, "We'll make you a deal. We have a deal to solve, solve everybody's problem," and they call it they call it um, debt for land. And so they tell the countries, "We will." Uh, we will forgive the principal on your debt. You still may have to service the interest, but we'll forgive the, the majority of the debt if you designate certain tracts of land in your country to a global heritage fund or heritage program. And all of a sudden, 500 you know uh, million acres are dropped into heritage zones and stuff that. Uh, that the United Nations cooked up that basically puts a padlock on the land for development. You can't do anything with it anymore. In some places, you can't even go on the property anymore. It used to be national property. Now it's just a no man's land. And so they've been accumulating key resources in the world, the United Nations has, by securing them away from any public access and government access of these other countries. Now they sit in the Global Common Trust See, in the United States, our Constitution does not provide for the federal government to own any real estate whatsoever, except for Washington, D.C., uh, some ports, uh, seaports, and some military bases. That's the only purpose for owning land in our country. Uh, and yet, over the last um, certainly 30, 40 years, our government has accumulated I think at latest count somewhere around 336 million acres of prime real estate in the United States. And you, your mind just has to go snap. What? What? Why does our government need real estate? Well, it doesn't. Clearly it doesn't. It's a government. It's not a it's not a landholder. It's supposed to just be government. Well, we see this happening all over the world. Resources being gobbled up. And there's two aspects to this. Somebody, somebody will say, well, don't we need to set aside the land for our generations, you know, to go out and watch the butterflies or something someday? And it's like this. The, the, the double-sided effect of this is um, not only are valuable resources being taken away from the current economic system, like mining and timber and stuff like that, but it also drives the price up of everything else and squeezes people out of business so even more land is accumulated by, by this machine. It's a self-perpetuating machine to accumulate physical resources of the world. It's really twisted in my opinion, but anyway, I, I kind of digress on that. I wanted just to explain that was the original goal and it hasn't changed and we see this continuing to happen today at every level of the United Nations, including working in concert with the, with the BIS, with um, the World Bank and the uh, International Monetary Fund. It's, it's a very deep plot, I have to say. Does the cyber world also constitute uh, a resource that they'd like, for example, the internet? It does, but within that, I ask, and I agree with what you say, the resource is, a, is or the internet is a resource, but here's the, the more disturbing picture of that. Over, over time, this may not have been Rockefeller's view back in 1973, but I, it certainly is today. Um, you and I have become 
resources. Not products, resources. This is, uh, in fact, <clears throat> one of my one of my favorite books right now is a book called um, it's by uh, Shoshana Zuboff, a former professor at Harvard, uh, wrote a book on surveillance capitalism, uh, which is you you should get that book if you haven't got it, get the Kindle version or something. Chat is brilliant, brilliant work. But she brings out the point that. The, uh, the big tech world, uh, the Googles and uh, the Facebooks of the world, right? They have turned people into resources directly by mining from them information that can be used and turned around to ensure captivity of those people. So this is different thinking because a lot of people today will say, well, you know, we're just products anymore and these guys mind and they're trying to manipulate us as products. And you, that's way too simplistic. We have become the resources. Now, the reason that's important, if, if, if land is the resources, if gold and silver and timber and farming and all that kind of stuff are resources of the world and animals, okay, that's, that's one thing. But when, when you consider that they think we are just out like animals that are no better than the wildebeest running in the national park, <laughs> you know, it hurts. They look at us as just resources now. Uh, and in, they're in treating what, us as resources. In what sense though, as in like our data, our profiling, I mean, what, what do you mean by us that's as resources? A, well, that's a big part of it. And it's, it, it'd be really hard to communicate the concepts of surveillance ca capitalism that, that uh, Zuboff has. Uh, she wrote a book on it. It's like 600 pages long. So it's, it's not, it's, mm. it's a deep book. And she gives lots and lots of examples on how this has been played out. But when people are uh, committed to be resources, they become targets of extraction, just like gold in the mine, you know? Hey, there's gold down there. Okay, so it's 5,000 feet down. No problem. We're going to extract it, right? Let's dig that tunnel, get down there and extract the gold. It's a resource. When people are viewed as a resource, then the next thing that has to be done to them, if it's a valuable resource, is to extract something from them, right? So what gets extracted from you is the data that it surrounds your life, the exhaust from your life. Everything you do, everywhere you go, every every like you make, every uh, mm. person you communicate with, all of this information is to be extracted. To, to you, I, I would call it exhaust from your life, right? That's just like what comes out of the back of your car. You go along, but, but, mm. but, but, and you got the exhaust coming out. But, you know, who cares? You breathe it, you probably die, right? With carbon monoxide. But when, when your life goes along and people are extracting all of the data around your life, they can then turn that around and use that to manipulate you through social engineering techniques to do what they want you to do, to, to introduce a certain predictability in your life. Like whatever the last 10 products you bought were, how can they be certain about the 11th product that you're going to buy? Yes. And just to confirm what you're saying, um, Patrick Fagan was on my podcast not so long ago, and he was the lead behavioral psychologist at Cambridge Analytica. And that's exactly what they were doing. Yes. 
You're exactly right. <laughs> That's it. So this is a little more nefarious than just general manipulation or nudging or whatever. Uh, they have perfected. They have perfected this art of extraction of humanity. Sure. With intent to use that in their social engineering. Remember, I said back about original technocracy. They call it the science of social engineering. Mm. Well, we're getting a taste now of what the social and how the social engineering is going to be manifest to us. It's not. It's no longer just what pe some people call a psyop, right? A psychological operation. It's much deeper than that at this point. So it's where humanity is being drawn into this internet world for the sake of uh, capturing mm. all or extracting all of this data and all of this information about you and groups of people and your family and your groups you're in and all that kind of stuff. The technocrat mind wants certainty. They crave data, of course, but they they crave certainty. They want to know what the outcome is going to be before they even run the model. And so wow. they're driven to predictability. They're driven to, to things that will be certain to them. They found a way to do it with surveillance capitalism, where they turn you and I into the product, into the, not the products, but into the, the resources that build the products that they turn around and sell to other companies. You say, well, okay, how can they do that? Well, let me tell you. If you're on, let's say you're on um, YouTube, not YouTube, but uh, Google. Um, Google has been tracking people's behavior, their purchases and uh, their whereabouts and you know where they do banking, all that kind of stuff. When you come on to Google and you're searching, you're, you think you're gonna search for something. <laughs> anyway, you got something in mind. I wanna search for Sony headphones or something, I don't know. And you start uh, by typing in headphone. You might get a different list on that dropdown about headphones compared to the guy down the street from you that typed in the same word headphone. He gets a different list. And maybe a guy or a gal across town typed in headphone at the same time, he gets, they get a different list. That list of suggestions for you has been modified for you because of you and all the data that they know about you. That's social engineering. Wow. Because the options you get to choose from, you know, when you see that little drop down list, whatever, those those are the op typically people go down to, oh, that's what I want. They go down to click on one. And it gives them a totally different experience than somebody down the street. They have tailored, they have tailored that marketing, that that cocoon around you and your personal situation, your personal profile. This concept so, was was actually written down back in 1932. By the way, it's incredible. So it's a it's a it's a dictatorship by science and technology. Yes, by algorithm essentially. You're right. By science, technology, and algorithm. Yes, it's pretty disturbing, I have to say. Mm. But once you see it, you cannot unsee it. It's just, I'm convinced of that. People have told me that. Patrick, can we go back just a little bit um, in history? And would you mind chatting to me a little bit about the Trilateral Commission? Because it's something that you've spoken about a lot. Yes, yes. 
Um, the Trilateral Commission was founded by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Rockefeller, the money guy, Brzezinski, the brains. Um, I likened it kind of that old movie, uh, Beauty and the Beast, sort of. <laughs> they were an odd couple. They were very, they were truly an odd couple. But they saw a need to kickstart globalization. There's kind of a story behind it. I won't go into it right now, but it's, it's not really relevant. But they wanted to uh, take more active control over the globalization process and drive it themselves according to their own ideology. So they took 300 people, members from North America, Japan, and Europe, primarily back then. It's expanded a little bit since then, but those are the three regions that they incorporated people from. The mix of membership included uh, CEOs and chairmen of large multinational corporations at the time, like IBM, uh, John Deere Tractor, Caterpillar Tractor, you know, the big giant companies of that day. Um, then they had a number of media people that were involved with them, like Time Magazine and Newsweek and uh, Dow Jones. And they were the, the ones that they muzzled. They said, you can come to the meetings, but you can't talk about them <laughs> to anybody. So they didn't. Um, then you had a bunch of uh, high, really high profile legal firms from around the world, representatives of legal. Um, and there were a few other uh, smaller groups that were represented. We kind of broke it down in our book uh, called um, um, Trilaterals Over Washington. And um, they coined the phrase initially called New International Economic Order. And this is their mission statement. They said, we, we foster the New International Economic Order. That was in 1973. By 1976, when the election, uh, presidential election came up and James Earl Carter, Jimmy Carter, was elected to president in the United States, the vice president was Walter Mondale. Between the two of them, they were the worst presidents and vice president in history. They were a train wreck. Both of them were members of the Trilateral Commission. Brzezinski later said that he had tutored, he picked them both personally, then he had tutored them in foreign policy. Um, otherwise, Carter was just a peanut farmer from Georgia. He'd been governor of Georgia, but that's all he was, was a peanut farmer from Georgia. And what does a peanut farmer from Georgia know about foreign policy? Namely, nothing. So, you know, Brzezinski stepped in, trained him for a purpose. And then Brzezinski became the national security advisor immediately as soon as Carter was elected. And they, they proceeded to a point uh, about 30% of the American membership of the commission to cabinet positions in Carter's administration. It was a clean sweep. They took over the whole thing. It was incredible. So at one point, every cabinet position that Carter had was filled by members of the Trilateral Commission, save one, one position. And a lot of people figured political coup, political coup. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of, in one sense it was, but they told us repeatedly, we're not interested in politics. We're economic oriented. We're trying to foster a new international economic order. A few years later, it really hit me what they had done when they took over the, the, the Carter administration because it gave them control over the world's largest, most powerful economic system and economic driver on the planet. And if they could get control of the economic engine 
they indeed could guide that you know big ship right to their destination so uh, we see that's exactly what happened um, the US government uh, typically appoints for instance the president of the World Bank right that's our that's what we do Europe appoints the IMF uh, president or whatever they call it so um, six out of eight of subsequent appointments over the years to the World Bank presidents were members of the Trilateral Commission. Just coincidence? No. <laughs> the World Bank was the most important engine of globalization that we had. Then you had the U.S. Trade Representative position. Those are the that's an underreported guy that writes the treaties and stuff that we get ourselves mm -hmm. into, right? Like, like NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and. Uh, there was CAFTA, I think it was the Central American Free Trade. These were creations of Trilateral Commission members because something like nine out of 12 of all of the U.S. trade representatives for years after that were members of the Trilateral Commission. Um, the doctrine that led up to Agenda 21 in 1992 was written by a European member uh, by the name of Gru Harlem Brundtland former president or premier of Denmark, a major environmentalist too, but she developed uh, the and is credited today by the UN. She's she wrote uh, or developed the whole concept of sustainable development. Well, how could a trilateral commission do that? <laughs> because she, was not, she wasn't writing for herself. She was writing policy for the trilateral commission. So they captured the economic structure of the world essentially and used it, branched it out to influence and to you know put all these other things systems in place that would give them control ultimately and that's where we that's kind of where we see it today with the world economic forum standing up and saying you know the great reset is coming the great reset is coming mm -hmm. you watch it it's coming and they're, they're probably right um, unless we do something to stop it and so that's how the trilateral commission has played into this over the years they've had a, a, a hugely influential role in modern globalization. But I mean, right up, right up until Obama's time, I mean, what, John Podesta? John Podesta, yeah, was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, he was, missed, he, in fact, Podesta is uh, credited in history books now as really being the sole architect of environmentalism in America. As first he started out with, uh, with um, uh, Bill Clinton, back in the 90s, along with Al Gore, his vice president. Al Gore, of course, the outspoken critic or, or you know, proponent, uh, champion or whatever of global warming, right? He's been um, wrong about everything. <laughs> he's been wrong about everything, but they all have. <laughs> they all have been wrong about everything they've done. It's not, yeah, that's a, that's a tell uh, to know whether you're dealing with a technocrat. Have you ever done anything right? <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever had anything that worked out? And most of them are gonna say, no, not really. But Podesta, in, in my opinion, was one of the most powerful members of the Trilateral Commission that we ever had anywhere close to our government. Of course, he was not mm -hmm. elected. He was not uh, accountable to anyone. He was just a guy who happened to get into these appointed positions. And he created these doctrines and these uh, all these, he advised the government people what to do and they went out and did it. Like, uh, like Bill Clinton and like Al Gore, they simply did it. When, uh, when Obama came into uh, being, um, as president, Podesta was right back there. 
He's right back with, you know, getting up close to Obama, saying this is what you need to do. And he architected everything that Obama did as far as the environment was concerned. But this was all sustainable development. It was all based on sustainable development and the United Nations doctrine that they had created years earlier. So the so the so the sustainable development framework is almost identical to the one from the 1930s. It is. Exactly. And the mindset's the same as well. And to be fair, we have to say, well, does that mean everybody in the United Nations knows about technocracy? No, they don't. I'm sure they don't. You know, the the, the little Indians down at the bottom of all that thing, not from India, but you know, the the, the mm. Indians versus the chiefs, they don't have a clue. They just have a job. They're just doing their job. They're glad to have a job and survive, but they don't have a clue what's going on by and large. The people at the top are another story. The people like Klaus Schwab are another story. Mm. And Bill Gates. Yes. Yes. Bill Gates. Yeah. There's a whole host of people that we can name like that, that are at the top of the heap. They're calling the shots, the Anthony Fauci's of the world. Mm. Um, with, and as Catherine Orson, as Catherine Orson Fitz says, a lot of the central bankers, um, including Augustine Carstens from the BIS. Yes, absolutely. Um, the the banking structure of the world, the core of it, which I contend is the Bank for International Settlements, the IMF, and the World Bank. Those are the global banking institutions that it, that influence and infiltrate everything else. Everything else is trickled out from there. So our Federal Reserve, um, your central bank, everybody else's central bank, whatever, they all answer to this hierarchy from the Bank for International Settlements. And the individual commercial banks then, like RJP Morgan's and whatever, uh, Citicorp City and Bank of America, those banks and so on, they also answer to our central bank as well as the Bank for International Settlements. Um, so it's a very incestuous relationship mm. that the banking structure has. And remembering that that the Trilateral Commission was started by a banking magnate of that day, the chairman of Chase Manhattan, tells you who is cooking up this whole business of um, new international economic order. It was primarily the banking system. So how are we looking? I mean, it's now almost a century later. Yeah. How are we faring? Mm. <laughs> Here's the problem. And my, this is, again, this is just my view. Mm. Problem is not enough people really, really understand or care who the enemy is and what they look like. I would contend in any, in any historical battle that if you cannot recognize who the enemy is on the other side, that's one of the reasons they wore uniforms. <laughs> so you could recognize your friends as well as your enemies, right? And not shoot the wrong person. Well, if an enemy is not defined, like in guerrilla warfare, where you know people are just in civilian clothes running around on the street, hiding shotguns under their trench coats, um, they're very hard to fight and they're very hard to conquer if they're not identifiable. People have not identified technocrats and technocracy for what it is yet. They don't understand the enemy. They're still looking at um, at Marxism. They're still looking at communists. You know, figuring, well, that's that's the enemy. And in my opinion, again, um, we have fought communists and uh, Marxists for decades in America. I've you know 
my, my friend, early friend Don McElvaney was an expert on Marxism, he really was. And we used to think that was the enemy. So we fought the Marxists, we fought the communists. But now I realize, have we done any good? Have we really pushed it back? Have we really conquered them? No, we haven't. We haven't even dented it. It's like they're more powerful today than ever before. So obviously, either we were impotent soldiers or we were stupid. You know, we just didn't know what we're doing. It doesn't matter. We failed to push it back. I will contend today the reason we failed to push it back is we were fighting the wrong enemy all along. We thought and, we were fighting the real enemy, but they weren't. They were somewhere up higher that were executing this new international economic order, a.k.a. technocracy, a.k.a. blah, 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 you know, sustainable mm -hmm. development. And nobody's paid attention to that. This is where the heart of the matter lies today and why we need to focus on technocracy today. This is why I refuse to give up the word technocracy. Mm. People want me to. They want to say, why don't you call it something else? No, because words matter. And they called it technocracy back then. You have to see historic technocracy before you understand what's going on today. But I mean, they, they, even, had a, they even had a magazine called The Technocrat. Yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> Listen, you know, there were over 500,000 card-carrying, dues-paying members in 1934, by 1934, in the technocracy movement in North America. That's a big, that's a big group of people. Mm. It's big in Canada too, big deal up in Canada. And this will tie into your, this is another good piece of tidbit for South, South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, I chuckled when I heard this at least. The head of technocracy in Canada during the thirties and forties was a chiropractor by the name of Dr. Joshua Haldeman. Haldeman tried to defend technocracy when Canada shut it down because it kind of looked like Nazi Germany. And they were afraid, you know, during World War II, yeah, you go, you guys, you guys look too much like the SS to us. You're, you're closed. You, you can't meet anymore. And Haldeman defended them up to a point. He finally got fed up with the whole thing and he left, he left Canada and went to South Africa. He migrated, immigrated to South Africa. And he raised his family there, right? And he raised his grandson there in South Africa as well. That grandson's name was Elon Musk. Ah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Elon Musk <laughs> left South Africa, went back to Canada to start college, and then he finished college in the United States. But he is a um, he was born in South Africa. Yeah, he went to Pretoria Boys High, I think. Yes, he did raised in a technocrat home, steeped in technocracy. And he exhibits all the markers of original technocrats today and has become the richest man in the world. Do you trust yeah. him? No, I don't, not for one minute. He's a technocrat. He has a technocrat mind. Mm. People look at, people say, well, it's, you know, it's communism, it's our enemy. Say, so, wait a minute. How does a communist become the richest man in the world? <laughs> how does a how does a communist game this, you know, whatever, you know, get get to a place where Musk is by being a Marxist or a communist? It's it just does not fit. It's an oxymoron. It and Patrick, 
a, a very obvious elephant in the room that hasn't come up in the conversation is China is actually not a communist country. I mean, it's it's only communist on the fringes, but in the main, it's a technocratic country. Right, right. Thank you for bringing that up. That was exactly what was on the tip of my tongue to bring up next. So <laughs> we're thinking alike here. When China came back onto the world stage, China looked a lot like North Korea looks today. They were a train wreck. They had no economy. Uh, their their system their system of communism had completely collapsed. The people were miserable, poor, sick, you name it. Horrible country. Um, Henry Kissinger, a member of the Trilateral Commission before it was formed, well, the Trilateral Commission formed in 73. Henry Kissinger was the first diplomat that made a trip under Nixon to, to China. And he opened up relations with China, which was patently illegal in our country at the time because Congress had not given him any position, any permission to go to an enemy country to negotiate, right? But there's a lot of flap on that. But by the time Zbigniew Brzezinski came in as national security advisor in 1976 to Jimmy Carter, one of the first things he did was to invite Deng Xiaoping to the United States, the current, then the premier of China, invited him to the United States, wined him and dined him, and brought him in his country back onto the world economic stage. That was Brzezinski. The history books, the political science books are absolutely clear on this. Brzezinski got 95% of the credit for, for instructing, for wooing, for whatever you want to call it, bringing China back onto the world stage. There's a lot of backstory to that too, but I'll just make that statement. It was Brzezinski that taught Deng Xiaoping on what it would be required to bring him onto the world stage. Now, a question in my mind came up was, did Brzezinski, and that was a watershed moment for China. For everything after that, China was up, 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 up and away. Mm. Did Brzezinski teach Deng Xiaoping the principles of free market economics? Or did he teach him about technocracy and the science of social engineering? You see, what happened then from 1976 or so, actually it was 1978, I think, when that, all that flurry of activity took place. From 78 to, to 2002, what is that, uh, 20, 24 years, something like that? Mm -hmm. In the ensuing 20 to 24 years, China had morphed into a classic technocracy. That was evidenced by Time Magazine, who was one of the original media components of the Trilateral Commission, by the way. Time Magazine wrote an article in 2002 called Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> an, odd, an odd title that didn't describe the content of the article. But the article written by one of the uh, employed writers or journalists at Time, in context of citing original historic technocracy from the 30s and 40s, okay, mm. citing the original stuff we've been talking about here, said that China is no longer a communist dictatorship, that it is a technocracy. It's being run by scientists and engineers 
to engineer a society, to engineer an economic system, to, to engineer an experience where the economy controls everything in society and is engineered from the top down. They simply just left all of the other people in red coats still sitting in their chairs and the flag up on the wall and the stars mm. fool people into thinking, well, it's still communist China after all. But even Time Magazine rightly said China, and this is me saying that they said it, it is a technocracy and it's exactly what you said. They are a technocratic state and they have fine-tuned this science of social engineering down mm. to just molecular level social credit scoring systems for instance oh and that's it's being just, exported that's being exported to the rest of the world now right now as as you know as you and i are talking it's being exported yes they're very even evangelical evangelical about spreading their their technocracy they spread it to um pretty much to all of asia we see it in india we see it in malaysia um you can see a lot of it in japan of course too but japan's always kind of been oriented that way but um, you see it in South America. They've taken over the, the sh a lot of the shipping routes like Panama. You see their incursions into Africa, probably especially in Sub-Saharan Africa with all kinds of expansive uh, development projects and you know roads and mm. bridges and uh, railroads and dams on rivers and stuff. I mean, they've just, all this stuff was not around 30 years ago, but it is today. China is very evangelical about exporting its brand of technocracy to the world. Belt and Road, by the way, initiative is a classic example of one technocratic and, uh, you know, uh, objective to bring trade together between Asia and Europe. And now they're trying to use the same concept to incorporate Africa as well as South America. I know that we're running... It's, it's Sorry, I interrupted you there. I know that we're running a little oh. bit, of, a little bit out of time, but I'm going to try and hold you for a few more minutes. But the one sure. thing, the one thing that you haven't spoken about yet that is in your book um, is part of the technocratic model is a cashless society. Yes, and that's also happening right now with the advent of digital IDs and uh, central bank digital currencies. Yes, yes, that, and yeah, for all of the. For all of the poor souls that have put their their hope and life into Bitcoin and Ethereum and other um, you know, blockchain oriented um, digital currencies, uh, I believe they're going to be there's going to be great disappointment ahead for them, because the central banks now have been running far far ahead on that whole meme, and they fully intend to take it over, in my opinion, to drive cash out. <clears throat> now. Uh, Cash is something, of course, that provides anonymity, uh, anonymity of purchases, anonymity of wealth that you might have. You can't keep, you know, you can fill your mattress up with, with uh, high denomination bills and nobody knows what you've got, right? Uh, they want to force everybody into the digital age, into the, the, the surveillance network of the modern internet so that everybody is included in the monitoring system. For all of the, I think it's somewhere around two and a half billion people in the world that are unbanked, that are unmonitored, untracked, this is a problem for technocrats. They want them in the system. They want to be able to control them, the data mine them, you know, 
turn them into their 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 resources they're just sitting out there like mm. like the gold that sits down in the mine you know it's there but you haven't even lifted one shovel yet to dig it out um so they want everybody on the system currency has to go the fiat currencies of the world have to go and i think this is rockefeller's original dream by the way he didn't know how it's going to happen but he knew there would be a time when the physical fiat currencies of the world would be completely useless worthless and would not support what he wanted to do with taking over the resources of the world today we see this brand new uh financial system coming on collectively it's called it's kind of called fintech financial technologies f-i-n-t-e-c-h right that kind of incorporates all the concepts of the new high-tech uh, you know financial world the united nations declared directly i think they were the first ones that did this this was probably you now four years ago they declared that fintech was the necessary financial system and the only financial system that could support sustainable development they said that <laughs> it's like okay i get it an economic and this makes sense look an economic system i don't care what it is if you have an economic system it has to have some means of finance in order to it's like having oil in the engine in your car right you, you can't run your car without oil in the engine so the financial system had to, has to support the new coming of sustainable development world economic forum talks about this they see fintech as being the answer to that financial system that would support on a global basis, sustainable development. So yeah. All roads lead to Rome. All the that's right. All roads lead to Rome right now. And whatever whatever artificial stimulus they use to drive you there, like global warming, or like the pandemic, those are just convenient props. Mm. Those, you know, th that's just like exploding a, a flare in the sky. Uh, to spook a bunch of animals to run a certain direction. It's, it's theater. It's theater. That's exactly right. Uh, I, Patrick, I, I, we, we can't end the conversation without the uplifting aspect. So what can we do to push back? Number one, don't play the role that they gave you to play. Simply don't play it. If you, if you can perceive that somebody's trying to make you play that role, dig your heels in like a stubborn old daunt mule or something, and don't play that role. Mm. The other thing that really impresses me recently is that the impediment against tyranny historically has been free speech. When speech is curtailed, uh, when speech is when free speech is wiped out, when when the when the victims no longer have a voice. That's when the killing begins. That's when the killing begins. And I'll tell you, you, you have some examples very close to your country. I, I'll, I'll pick on Mozambique in particular. The first thing that happened in Mozambique at its original takeover by Marxist guerrillas, liberation theology, <laughs> talk about an oxymoron. They shut down the media. They took over all the radio stations. They took over all of the newspapers. They killed a lot of journalists that were dissenting journalists. They just got rid of them. And all of a sudden, there was no voice of the opposition in Mozambique. 
and when there was no voice, that meant there was no scrutiny. There was there was uh, a covering over the you know people could get away with murder and anything they wanted, never to be discovered, nobody to complain about it or whatever. That was the particular time when the Marxist guerrillas began pulling the intelligentsia, rich people, educated people out in the street and hacking them into little pieces. But they could not, that no word came out to the Western world on what was going on in Mozambique because free speech had been silenced. That speaks volumes to us today. We saw the same thing in the Bolshevik Revolution. We saw it in Germany. We've seen it in Cambodia is another example. When, when the press went silent, that's when the killing fields came into action. Rwanda as well, I, I think. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is crazy. Free speech is the natural uh, antidote. It's the, it's the, 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 the vaccine against <laughs> purity. And the day, the day our voice goes silent will be the day when the total genocide ha starts to happen. And it'll be ugly, uglier than anything I think we've ever seen. I don't like to make predictions, but I, mm. I can make a historical observation. Free speech and keeping free speech alive is critical to freedom and liberty. Without it, we don't. We're we're done. We we don't. We can have. We can keep our microphone, but it won't do us any good if nobody's on the other end to hear us. So, that's kind of my big takeaway at this point. I, that's why I'm doing a lot up here with. Our organization, Citizens for Free Speech, uh, it's a nonprofit to the United States, but you know we're trying to we're trying to defend, uplift, and equip people to to keep their free speech alive, to exercise it correctly and responsibly. Um, we have a lot of people from other countries that have joined us just because they're into free speech too, and it's interesting that the concept of free speech is universal everywhere in the world. Everybody understands it. There's, it's like, you know, it's no mystery. It's like, yeah, um, people that love liberty want to be heard. And when, 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 you talk, when you talk about free speech, though, you, you, you mean speaking out against what's going on. Well, <clears throat> speak, that, that's, the, that's the effect of free speech. Mm. But in the marketplace of ideas, as long as people, as long as the speakers or the writers or whatever are not trying to intentionally deceive people for some manipulation, as long as it's not um, destructive to somebody else's uh, property or life or reputation or whatever, there's laws on the books against that, like laws against slander and libel and fraud, etc. Um, the marketplace of ideas has always been rather tumultuous. Some, sometimes people say, oh, it's kind of chaotic. But look, even an idiot has a right to, to speak stupid things. As long as he's not trying to chisel somebody into something on the other side of the aisle by lying to them, um, we take the marketplace of ideas and sort them out. That's part of the human mind. That's what we do. We, sh we should not be in a position to say, well, you can't say that. Of course, unless it's a lie, in that which case we take it to court. But um, the world has been developed and the world has been made better where free speech was working, at least 
for instance, in the scientific community, to argue, to discuss, to debate whether you know certain science or math was correct or not, whatever. Um, people have the ability to sort out truth from error in the end of it, I believe. And so we let people speak. And if they want to speak against uh, mandates and you know vaccine passports, well, let them speak. What if there's a guy on the other side that wants to argue for vaccine passports? Maybe he's not trying to deceive anybody necessarily, but he's got an argument on why they're good. Mm. I say let him speak, and we'll chop him up in the marketplace of ideas. You know, put him back where they belong. But open and public debate is what I'm talking about here. Yeah, this and is of what course, must be maintained. Yeah, and that's not Pardon? happening because you have you have big tech shutting down and silencing yes. at the moment. Exactly, the censorship is the death of it. And this is always what happens on the other side. Shut down the opposition, refuse to let them speak, refuse to let the ideas of liberty and freedom creep out again into the ears of people who would gladly and willingly accept them. And this is the way tyranny is. And I have to say that there's never been a one case in history where tyranny has ever retreated on its own. It, mm -hmm. it is incapable of doing that. It always must advance. It, it goes from worse to worse to worse. And the only way it ever gets uh, obliterated is when it's completely and thoroughly conquered by the forces of freedom and liberty, who would who would take you know more of the position maybe that we're thinking. But tyranny will not retreat, and that's part of the problem in the Western world. I think we've missed this: that uh, well, we can be Mr. Nice Guy, and you know we need to be tolerant and this, that, and the other, not realizing that tyranny just year after year, month after month moves forward just like a, a tank on an endless supply of diesel fuel <laughs> you know it just keeps coming and i think until the western world at least and maybe some other parts of the world really start to understand that you can't get rid of tyranny by appeasing it mm. it must be resisted free speech is the first defense line of defense on resisting tyranny and we mustn't give up we must not give up must not give up ever never never um, I like the phrase that was uttered by a politician up here in America one time. He was a, a Democrat from Texas, actually. Uh, it, uh, Democrats in Texas are a little bit different than the run-of-the-mill technocrat up here, or, uh, <laughs> Democrat up here. But he was all upset with big oil. He 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 wanted to get Exxon, I think it was, for something. And he had been he was running for attorney general. He put up this big billboard across from Exxon with his finger like. You know, Uncle Sam wants you sort of thing. He said, I'm coming for you. And a big, a big boast. But he said, as attorney general, he's going to really get him. And his motto, his campaign motto was, um, to those big oil companies, was, um, I will fight you till hell freezes over, and then I'll fight you on the ice. And, I, and I've always remembered that. I love that statement. I just... I, <laughs> Now, there's a man that's dedicated, right? You know where he's going to be until the day he dies. He says, I'm going to fight you guys until hell freezes over. And when it does, I'll fight you on the ice. I'll keep on going. <laughs> this is kind of the message that freedom-loving people need mm -hmm. to give to these people that are trying to take over the world, is you're not going to get away with it. No. Not, not freely, anyway. You'll have, to, you'll have to run over and kill us before you know we will shut up. But in the meantime, as long as we have breath, we must, must, must speak out against them, call, call a spade a spade, so to speak, speak truth, um, 
but in a hopefully in an intelligent way that other people can receive mm -hmm. it and accept it and internalize it and get it into their brain to where okay now I see what's going on um, there's so much confusion now there's so much so much disinformation misinformation propaganda fake news I mean you name it people are so confused today they don't know which way to turn yeah so you know we need to hook up with them hopefully you know your your broadcast to people whatever will hook up with people say look you know we're not wing nuts out here we're, we're not people just you know flying off a handle cooking things up inventing things from scratch um these are real things that need to be looked at with intelligent reasoning minds in almost every case when i talk to when i'm able to talk to somebody like i'm talking to you today people come away saying you know uh, there's something really, really significant here to take away from this. You know, we, we need to quit. We need to take a deep breath, step back, analyze the situation with a little bit of sanity, right? Not fear and find out what's really going on. Because when you're saturated with propaganda, you only have one of two choices. You either are going to be triggered by the fear and shoved into the propaganda message or you're going to reject the propaganda out of hand and say, I will not tolerate anybody that speaks propaganda to me, period. I won't tolerate it. I'm going to turn that TV off. I'm going to turn that, cancel that subscription, whatever that newspaper. I'm not going to listen to that anymore. Mm. Take a stand. That's right. Put up a firewall. Uh, Patrick, in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Well, <clears throat> I see this year at least in America, I see some good news coming that, uh, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth on politics and life in general. Um, the world has been saturated in fear for the last two years. That is about the limitation that man shows for fear and the pendulum begins to swing the other way. Um, I could see some positive events taking place, uh, maybe certain medical technocrats resigning from their position, maybe the World Health Organization doing an about face on wearing face masks, or even on vaccination, I see that already starting actually. Um, maybe some geopolitical developments that might make people hopeful. But I would caution, any for any good news that comes out this year, I would caution people, do not be fooled into thinking that the enemy has gone to sleep or gone away. Because the periods of hope, where hopium is sold instead of fear, hopium is just as addictive as fear, but when hopium is sold, that is when technocrats can do the most damage to society because nobody's watching them mm. again. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. I'd, I'd like some good news, personally. I'd like to see any kind of good news right now, but. When it comes, my greatest fear is that people are just going to sit back and say, oh, hey, you know, we kicked them, you know, they're, they're gone, uh, you know, we solved the problem, it's not, you know, we're going to get better and whatever, and they're going to lay down their guard. And that would be the most dangerous thing in the world we could do. So otherwise, I see, you know, they're not going to stop with this. I, I think the coup d'etat started in early 2020 with COVID. And I think they're not done with it. I think another shoe is going to drop maybe this year, early next year. 
And that could be some other global emergency. It could be something like a financial collapse of some sort or, you know, a big giant bank going out of business and mm. you know, collapsing some of the uh, supply chain financing. I mean, it, probably a number of things that could happen. But I don't think the technocrats are done with the coup d'etat. I think they're going to have to hammer the economic system even more than it has been with COVID. And um, so that's something on my radar. If I'm looking at. Other than my recommendation of everybody buying your books where can people follow you technocracy.news is the best place um, to follow my professional work uh, i've got I post articles every day from around the world that talk about technocracy in one aspect or another and uh, you know there's tons of videos and stuff out there on the internet that i've done like this i figure that's one way i can kind of salt the internet uh, you mm out there multiple sources all over the planet can receive some of broadcasts like this and that, that's fantastic to me um so look on the internet search for my name search for technocracy you're liable to you know turn up something that i've done in the past and then um you know of course the books are available all over the world too and i encourage people if you can't buy a physical book in your local bookstore uh, at least get the Kindle version. There's an audio version that's sold all over the world and English too. But um, you know, nevertheless, there's there's people that have uh, actually translated part of it. So you could probably find those on the internet too. Patrick Wood, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I've kept you a lot longer than you had promised me. I apologize. Hey, what, when you're having fun, right? It's like you gotta you gotta keep going. Well, it isn't. It, I. I sh I don't want to give people the wrong idea when I say you're having fun. This isn't fun, mm. right? I mean, none of this stuff is fun. That's the wrong term to use. But we can certainly say, no matter how bad it gets, as human beings, we need to remember how to smile, mm. and we need to remember how to be cordial, and how to speak truth that doesn't offend, necessarily. And that's the only thing that keep keep me smiling. You know, every day as I go along and stuff, it's like, hey, we just lay the information out. You take it for what you want to do, right? You, whatever you want to do with it, that's your business. I'll, you know, as a human being, I may disagree with you till the ends of the earth, but you're still a human being, and I appreciate you for that. <laughs> My name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfe, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.